Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. I cannot believe that it's been five months since I last recorded, so I must apologise to all the listeners. Um, I've been on a bit of a hiatus, as I've mentioned before, I'm finishing up my doctorate and I'm literally only weeks away from finishing, so I've had my priorities, but um, I do appreciate all the messages from huge numbers of you. It's always encouraging to know that people actually do listen to this because when we're recording these podcasts, it's basically just a few of us staring at a microphone and possibly someone's image on a screen. We don't realise the numbers that are involved. So Without further ado, I'd like to kickstart, we'll, we'll call this a new series then. So we'll kickstart this new series with um, two guys who've been on this podcast before um, and who have also both uh, lectured for us on the ISSN Diploma Postgraduate Programme. So um, it is with huge pre- pleasure I bring back to you Dr. James Betts and Dr. Javier Gonzalez, both from the University of Bath. Hi guys, how are you doing? Hello. Hi everyone. Brilliant. So, listen, um, as we were discussing off air, there's um, all sorts of things about uh, published papers and even podcasts where not everyone um, will have read uh, necessarily the paper we're going to get into today. They won't necessarily have heard your uh, previous podcast because whilst there's a a pretty big following, there's loads of newbies. So um, let's assume that nobody knows who you guys are. So James and Javier, if you could um, just tell us who you guys are. Okay, so I'm Javier Gonzalez, um, and I'm a human physiologist um, based at the University of Bath, and I teach on our sport and exercise science and physical activity and health courses, um, but my area of research is in nutrition and metabolism. And likewise, um, I'm in the Department for Health at the University of Bath. Uh, my name's James Betts. Um, I work in nutrition and metabolism too with a particular interest in feeding patterns and the inverse of that of course then is um, patterns of when you're not feeding and you're fasting so uh, I suppose we have very much shared interests and um, the two of us work together on a lot of current projects. Yeah and as I mentioned earlier you um, James you did a podcast with me um, which was episode 79 and that was on energy balance um, which was fascinating um, in many ways uh, particularly with regards to this concept that metabolism isn't a sort of a static system, it's constantly adjusting um, based on all sorts of, of uh, factors that um, listeners can, can read about. And Javier, you did a, a really uh, fascinating podcast way, way back on episode 71, which was about breakfast um, and, um, you know, how important is it? Or is it important? Um, And obviously we go into loads of context on that one. But to bring us back to why you guys are here today, um, as I had said, you've done a few lectures for us on the ISSN Diploma and um, you had also brought with you James, um, Professor Dylan Thompson, who you work with. um, And we got into all sorts of interesting stuff about metabolism. But um, throughout your lectures and throughout many of the experts that I've either interviewed on this podcast or we've had lecture on, on the ISSM program, um, this concept of individualization or um, intra and inter individual variability does come up quite a bit. And we do talk often about how scientists publish means, um, we're not necessarily looking at individual data. Um, but either way, this word individual comes up a lot. And um, 
when your paper came out, which was personalized nutrition, what makes you so special, which you um, have literally just had published in the British Nutrition Foundation Nutrition Bulletin, and um, I'll link to your um, date, you know, your uh, research gate, etc., so folks can learn how to access this paper. Um, it really struck home to me just, well, not just how fascinating this whole concept of personalized nutrition is, because as human beings, we're all egocentric. It's all about me. Is my diet, not your diet. I don't want any. I don't want to do everybody's diet, an average person's diet. I want to do something that's right for me. And of course, there's been lots of people um, that have come up with these um, all sorts of interesting diets that apparently are, are personalized, whether it's based on some sort of genetic test or some other factor. Um, but of course, your paper raises some interesting questions about that, whether or not it's actually... Um, relevant or maybe as usual what's happening is is people aren't necessarily defining what they mean by personalized and there's often a sort of a mismatch between how language is used um, in the context of, of the spoken word in conversations on social media and what scientists may use in papers so just just like I usually do or at least started to do in, in more recent podcasts is, is if perhaps we could just define um, a few things here. Uh, no, actually, do you know what? Scrap that. I'm being silly. Let's, James, why don't you tell us firstly why you even came up um, with this paper? What, 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 what actually um, made you want to write this paper? I think for me, I can track that back two and a half years um, to the American College of Sports Medicine meeting in Orlando. And... Um, in between going to Disney World, I, I did attend the scientific sessions and uh, was very pleased to see so many people switching to reporting individual responses to treatments instead of just the, the boring stock kind of plunger graphs where you see the mean and can't take anything else away from it. So while that's something that we'd of course advocate and is important for readers to take in, whether it's in a presentation or, or in a paper, there was this trend, it struck me, that people would um, present their data in a way. So you line up your participants in rank order of who responded and who didn't. And lots of throwaway comments at the meeting from authors saying, this demonstrates inter-individual responsiveness, i.e. some people respond more than others, or in particular when they show this kind of um, curve that's demonstrating, it looks like there's some responders and some non-responders. And while it's admirable then to see um, the raw data shown, it struck me immediately that you could reorganize that figure into a normally distributed curve, which is then no surprise at all. You're very lucky as a scientist if you do an experiment and everybody responds not just the same way, but by the same magnitude. It struck me then that actually maybe a lot of these studies are not really showing inter-individual differences. So I, uh, I scrolled the two different types of figures down on the back of a, a napkin at the time and took some photographs and tweeted those and then two years later I, I was presenting that sentiment at a, a conference myself and just made the statement that personalized nutrition is this kind of sexy new term that everybody's holding up as our, um, our savior in the fact that diets sometimes don't do what we'd like them to and maybe it's the fact that we're treating groups and not individuals and it just struck me that that's a very powerful message. People resonate with the fact that if they're being treated as unique and 
told they're special, that gives us a nice warm feeling. But I started to look at the science behind that and um, obviously have you and I sit and talk over coffee a lot about these kind of issues and we realize that there's a number of levels on which you can start to question that reasoning. And you know, it's, it's uh, as you were saying that, I was just thinking that it's not just people or the you know the 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 clients if you like that love this concept is very much the practitioner loves the idea of being able to offer a personalized approach i mean after all you know someone has spent time learning about stuff they've they've hopefully gone to university got their degrees they've gotten their certifications they've gotten their cpd um you know they need to justify their time they need to justify that that idea that they're an expert and this person has come to see them as an expert and if all you're going to and if all you're going to do is just tell them what you tell everyone else then it gets a bit tricky particularly in terms of justifying who you are and you know your charges and why someone should bother to come see you and not just read it on a piece of paper so i think it it it's it's an incredibly addictive concept uh, personalization um, but as I almost got into uh, right at the uh, the preamble bit there, um, maybe we should define just a bit more what we mean by personalization. And um, in your first paragraph, actually, you mentioned this concept that when they use the words personalized or bespoke or customized, it is assumed to be more superior because it's got that exclusivity over and above sort of a one size fits all. Um Maybe maybe you guys could just go into that a bit more, just so we can all be on the same page. Sure, yeah, and and just to be clear, we we also agree that um, trying to personalise a diet or, or personalising our nutrition or, or anything else, indeed, is admirable. We would love to be able to do that, but um, the question we're trying to answer in this paper is whether we have the evidence base to actually prescribe that currently. Um, and I guess that, that's what we can delve into a little bit further. But in terms of the definitions, um, personalized nutrition can be interpreted in different ways. And by many people, I think it's interpreted as um, a, a certain type of diet is best for you or most optimal. And, and to, for a starting point, finding the optimal is very difficult in science. That means you have to have tested every single other possible combination. Um, of which there are, are many, and showing that the, this particular diet is better. But importantly with the personalized part, that it's unique to that individual. Um, it, it would be very surprising if a single person responded in a certain way to a diet and they were the only person in the world that would respond in that way. Um, therefore, we think that if, if anything, we're probably going to get to a stage where we have stratified nutrition, where we can categorize people into different groups. So it's not the same advice for absolutely everyone, but based on either fixed characteristics or dynamic characteristics, we're adjusting guidelines accordingly. Yeah, actually, I can see there's going to be, we, we had offline, we had this concern about whether or not we'd be able to make this into a one hour podcast, but I'm already, I'm already thinking of huge numbers of very, uh, different angles we can come. Um, so one thing that's popped in my head that I think we should get into is this popular concept of a responder and non-responder. And I know later in your paper, you get into that a bit more by this concept of a, a, a predictor response. But a responder and non-responder is really popular um, and a lot of people will use that 
one way or the other to justify or have some sort of excuse for something. And I, and I read some interesting stuff by Asker Yukendroop about, you know, this idea of responders and non-responders being silly. But um, maybe you could define what that means and then tell us a bit more about what your thoughts are about that concept. Um, so I think we've, both, we've probably both got something to say on this. Um, and there are some, some great papers out there. Um, Luke Van Loon's actually got one on resistance training uh, where they looked at a variety of outcomes. And that's interesting in that the title of the paper is that there are no non-responders to resistance type training. And there it may be a case of if you've measured one outcome, such as one rep max bench press, you may get some people who appear based on your measurements as not responding on that occasion. But if you measure their leg press strength, then they perhaps responded. And if you took any individual from that study, um, there were there were no non-responders in regards to they would have responded in at least one outcome. Um, another point on that is um, we've actually got a, an appetite paper. Um, and this same principle applies to many different areas and, and different outcomes. Um, and what's interesting in that one is that if you measure people's appetites in response to eating a meal um, that contains a high energy content, then on average, people will report feeling fuller and less hungry. Um, if you look at the individual response to, to that, it varies. And you could classify people based on that single measurement as being either responders or non-responders. What's interesting is we then got them in the lab again, and we, they repeated the, the experiment in exactly the same way. And if you look at the average, it's remarkably similar between their first and second go at the study. But if you look at the individual responses, over 50% of people responded differently to their first exposure. And, and that's differently to a greater extent than the measurement error. So whilst there very, may very well be people who are true responders and true non-responders for a particular outcome, it's difficult to determine that and probably impossible to determine that based on a single measurement. Yeah, I think to link from that last part, there are certainly true responders and non-responders out there in certain contexts. And, and we were just talking uh, before the podcast about what would be a good example to give of this. And, and one that jumped to my mind would be, let's say in a sports example that... Um, Javi and I both decided to start taking creatine and then one of us sees a benefit that week and feels like, oh, I, you know, that, that's really helped me along after I've done my few days of loading and the other one says, oh, I feel no different and maybe, maybe we are measuring things in a controlled way and we could evidence that. And if then the next week you see the same again and the same again, then an individual, of course, can start to say, I feel good with this and that could be whether we're talking about creatine or carbohydrate supplements or anything else if one person seems to be consistently doing well with it and tolerates it well you might say well it just makes sense then that person might take that and the person who doesn't see the benefits wouldn't do what we wouldn't do though is just give somebody a supplement on one occasion they think they had a good game or a good workout and say hey i'm a responder i'm going to take this forevermore no matter what the effects and we certainly wouldn't start just making a one-off snapshot judgment of that person and saying hey, we, we took a biopsy and you had low creatine. That justifies taking creatine forevermore. So there are certainly responders and non-responders in certain contexts. And if we remember that what we'd actually want to see, just at an individual level, if you have an athlete, if they start doing something and it works for them and it keeps working for them, keep doing it. 
that simple message in mind, now let's back up and see, as, as complex as a scientific study might look, we're now trying to take a snapshot measurement and categorize a person as to what they should do or even measure just a one-off response. And as, as we refer to them in the paper, you could say these people are responded but not responders. To call someone a responder and predict their future responsibility, you'd need to see that on future occasions. And as Javi's data showed, that's not always the case for many variables. Yeah, it, it probably comes back to just the a fundamental principle of science, and that's that we observe what's going on around us, but we don't um, take something at, at face value. Um, we, we look at averages because that's one way of repeating an experiment, but across different people. But in order to detect signals in the noise, if you like, you can do that by looking at, at groups of people, but you could repeat the experiment just in the same person or the same couple of people. And if they consistently respond in the same way, then you can have a bit more confidence that they are a true responder in either way. Yeah, and I, I, the reason, and I want to stay on this for a bit because I think it's pretty critical to our understanding of what this information means. And in the same way that in a passing conversation with someone, either about yourself or about someone else, you might say, are you having a good day today? Um, and from that, you can extrapolate that to the fact that they might not have a good day on another day. So obviously, you know, in this context, you know, is the person being tested today the same person that's being tested tomorrow? Um, now, obviously, on one level, of course, it's the same person. It's the same name. It's the same person with the same ID. But there are so many characteristics that change and fluctuate um, all the time. And, and you use the right word is you're just taking a snapshot in your study. But people um, frequently will read that research as um, not a snapshot, but an actual, um, you know, a view of how that person is all the time. And that's why I always go on about context, is that the information that we've gathered is in the context in how the study was done, and that's why you have to read the methods and so on and so forth. But if, if you guys could just elaborate a bit, because not everyone would have had the luxury of listening to your lectures and your previous podcasts, is the fact that things do vary all the time. And there's a big difference um, between um, a snapshot um, when a blood sample's taken, when someone's measuring RMR for 10, 15 minutes, when a, um, a certain test is, is done for a period of minutes, but we exist um, in a time period that's greater than that, um, whether it's 24 hours, whether it's a week, a month, a year, maybe you guys could clarify the relevance of that term snapshot. Yeah, I think that the terms that flow from that are this subtle difference in the spelling of the prefix. It's inter-individual variability versus intra-individual variability and the kind of variance within a person minute to minute, day to day. And of course, as scientists, and as many coaches will do, what you try and do is control variables so that it, you're hoping that if you know the important variables, so for a uh, resting metabolic rate test, we know that important variables are not having eaten, eaten very recently, so your fasted, your recent meals, your recent exercise, and so on. By controlling those, we would hope that we make a measurement that is valid as a reflection of that individual consistently. But then there's always variables we're not controlling and many variables that we're not even thinking about or haven't heard of that could impact that. 
And that's where this figure of intra-individual variability comes from, how much that person would change test to test. And while then, when, if we make a measurement and we see marked inter-individual, so a good um, range of scores or responses across different people, it is correct for scientists to label that as inter-individual variability or the differences between people. The step, I think, in the interpretation where we need to be cautious is then immediately saying, this justifies treating people differently. Because what we don't know from that measurement alone is the intra-individual differences. And that's where you need repeated measurements to start to know, well, would this variability have been the same again next time? And most importantly, would the people we're labeling as responders worthy of a customized treatment would they actually respond the next time in future? That's really the core question that this comes down to. And, and, and just on top of that as well, there's, there's another layer which is, there's, there's variability in measurement error. Um, but we're talking about even if you have the perfect measurement tool, there is still random variability between people that can explain the differences that you might see. Yeah, and on, on that, by the way, that so in our paper, um, we're... Uh, I, I thought it was appropriate to just create a pencil sketch of this of this pattern that I, I scrawled on the back of a, a um, tissue paper at, at the conference. So we did it just with a pencil sketch in the paper. However, the paper I would advise people to go and have a look at, we cite, is the one from Greg Atkinson and Alan Batterham last year, where they really took this apart comprehensively and had a huge simulated data set to demonstrate that these oscillations in just your measurement error along with um, normal oscillations in natural response could explain what seems at first to be a responder or non-responder. So, and, and people can get extra marks if they can guess which famous sports team uh, the names refer to. Um, <laughs> a clue is James's favourite sport, which uh, <laughs> in terms of variability, he may beat me by more points than others on different occasions, but it would be very, very rare for me to beat him. Javi, Javi, this is a serious podcast. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> this is not a game make, show. Uh, Can you to make this uh, to make the real true point that these are about individuals? We did put names on our on our frequency <laughs> distribution curve so that people could uh, could take away that if we're comparing a, a mic and a fill to see who's a responder, you really can boil down personalized nutrition to that that level. Yeah, and I I. There's so much about this I, I like because, as we said at the beginning, the concept of personalization is just such an attractive concept. Um, but just how different actually are we? And, and this is a big point that you make that really, really, really struck me um, as to how I think we, we get a bit misled by the, um, you know, the, the sort of the sexy glistening of the way personalized approaches are um, marketed, um, whereas some of the boring stuff um, is not really uh, not really focused on, which actually might be more relevant. And I've, I've used this phrase many a time before, and um, um, to give it uh, a proper due, it came from Sean Arendt originally in a, in a lecture that he did for us. But, you know, many times you can do something, but whether you can do something or not, isn't necessarily you know the most important factor is because should you you can but should you so this this is one of these things where yeah you can do it but should you do it is another matter and um that's why i wanted to get you to discuss this this concept of how how much difference actually is there between us in the context of the relevance 
of needing to actually personalize? So on the can versus should, I mean, I think one thing we've done in the paper is provide a table where what, what we've described is you need to be able to measure the predictive variable and the outcome. So in terms of can you do this, you need a predictive variable that actually has some relevance. And sometimes we have a predictive variable we can measure with extreme accuracy, like the genotyping example we give, but can you actually use that meaningfully? And based on current data, that's not been as successful as, as was hoped when the genome was profiled. Whereas other things we, we can do, so body mass is very simple. It doesn't feel quite so exclusive if you're just saying, yeah, you're bigger, you might need to eat more of that. But that one does seem to be predictive. So for many outcomes, particularly in exercise science, we do know that many of them require, you require more depending on how much new tissue you're feeding. I think that's an element then. And like you say, it really comes down to this fundamental question, are, are the differences between us larger than the um, differences within us or, or what actually um, uh, unites everybody? And I yeah. think the, the thing we're fighting against, not fighting against really, but the, the, the pattern that people are kind of assumed to go with as a default is the consumer will feel special and resonate with this message that they're unique as a starting point. Yeah. It feels like personalized nutrition is progress, and it may be. Um, and then, as you mentioned, I think industry know that it will sell products if, if you can say things are personalized. And the whole industry of personal training would be very difficult to justify if someone was saying, well, actually, 90% of my clients all need the same thing. Where personalized nutrition comes into its own then is saying, how do we identify the people who do justify a treatment outside of the guidelines? And when we've identified them, what are the measurements we can realistically make that will predict who's going to respond? Yeah, I mean, there are some difficult areas here, of course, because one could also argue that the advantage of this allure of a personalized, customized, bespoke program, and I do them myself um, for my clients and athletes, but I think it fits more into what you call precision nutrition, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, but if, if, you know, if we look at what diet works best, well, it's the one that someone's able to consistently do over a long period of time. And in order for someone to consistently adjust their habits and behaviors so that they're actually compliant with their diet, they have to buy into that diet. And one thing about personalized nutrition is literally just putting a label of personalized on it will result in some degree of success for some people, at least with their personalized intervention. Not because the intervention is actually um, any good. It's just because the person buys into this is for me. It's my own personal diet. Therefore, I'm going to stick with it for some time. What, what, what about that angle? Yeah, but there is certainly some evidence recently whereby it's a randomized controlled trial, um, some impressive methods there, and it does seem to be the case that if you tell people that this diet is personalized for them, then they will more likely adhere to a particular healthy dietary guideline. They will report that they are eating less food um, compared to a control group who are given just generic dietary advice. And given that most people are overweight or, or obese, 
um, then a re reduction in energy intake is probably a good thing. And, and what's probably hitting home there is, is that um, telling people that they are special and unique and that you have spent additional time preparing this diet specifically for them, um, they appreciate that and value it and will, will adhere to it uh, more so. And, and I think part of that comes down to people's perception of what genetics are. So um, people presume that their genome uh, is, well, it certainly is fixed, but they presume that their genome is then prescript prescriptive of the rest of their life. So, for example, uh, the traditional view is that a gene is a code, which it is, and, and it codes for proteins. And then uh, the, the direction of causality is that genes encode proteins, which then have a function in the body. And that's the physiology that, that we are interested in studying. Um, but there are some great examples showing that that causality probably flows both directions. Um, and, and a really good analogy that I'll steal from Dennis Noble is you can think of, of it as similar to music. So you've got DNA, which is your record or in modern day, your, your CD or MP3, I guess. Um, and in order to, for that to be music, it, is, it doesn't really do anything on its own. It requires the machinery, the record player, to literally read it and then play the music. And that's a bit like the DNA in our cells. We need machinery to actually make it useful and have it and perform some kind of, of function. And some strong evidence for that is a, a great study where they took uh, two different types of fish, so carp and goldfish, and um, they took the goldfish egg and they took the nucleus out of it. So most of the DNA was taken out of the goldfish egg and they put in it the, the nuclei from a carp. So it had the, most of the DNA from a carp, but the egg itself was a goldfish. And the hybrid that was produced was somewhere in between the two. Um, so if, if you just count the number of vertebrae, then a carp has 33, a goldfish has 26. And yet this hybrid has a middle number, 28 vertebrae. Um, so it seems like both the, the cell itself and the DNA within the cell both play a role in, in the physiology and the outcomes that we're interested in. Yeah, and I think then to, to kind of translate that is, is kind of why we started to categorize these different predictors as which are fixed or stable characteristics because it, it really leads people to believe that if they're looking at a genetic measurement they feel that's what makes me who I am, and who I am on that basis is necessarily stable and the same. And the practical application of that is people wondering, are there some people who should eat this way every day, and they should have their diet plan fixed based on that fixed measurement? Whereas we're trying to ask the question, is it not that are there some people who should eat this way every day, or is it that all people should eat this way on some days? Which, of course, not only then reflects that this is a dynamic process and your needs and requirements vary over time, but also neatly fits with the ar argument that most people would agree with that a diet should be varied in nature. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a very interesting topic and I've gotten into this actually with a, a few people. Um, did a whole podcast all about this with Nancy Guest um, and that um, super fascinating, recommend everyone listens to that. Um, um, I think she sort of agreed that you can't just create some entire dietary program off, off the basis of this, but it still has its, its uses, um, particularly in terms of identifying, for example, um, athletes who might be 
more susceptible to iron metabolism issues or um anyway there's all sorts of stuff there which i think is worth listening to because little things can be additive particularly at the elite spectrum but what we're talking about of course is you know a more generalized uh, concept here and 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 i always talk about tests for example are tools in the toolbox you have to consider the value of everything and where it fits in the in the um in sort of in the hierarchy of context um, which genuinely is something I'm creating <laughs> for my uh, uh, that I'm going to patent is this Bannock's hierarchy of context. So you heard it there, folks. Um, but um, on this topic with Stu Phillips, we briefly talked about it and we got into this this concept um, a bit. And um, I don't think I think he was uh, quoting someone else when he said that you can describe some of this in in um, in this way, which is where genetics loads the gun. Uh, lifestyle pulls the trigger but then if you explore that a bit further um, it then um, depends on where you're pointing the gun it depends if the gun has a malfunction it depends on whether there's um, a bullet in the chamber depends if the firing pin actually worked whether there was any explosive there are so many variables um, that are more relevant than whether or not genetics actually loaded the gun or not um, for example, you, you may go through all that process and point the gun in the air and nothing happened. So individual choice, individual control um, may be the most relevant concept here. But I, I think it's fair to say that it's, it's a wonderfully exciting topic, but we just don't know enough yet to be um, sort of, um, you know, like you say, prescriptive or um, factual, you know, uh, about these things. No, I agree with that, and um, I think uh, another point I'd, I'd make on this kind of requirements issue is even if we get away from genetics as as what maybe many people feel is if, if you wanted to justify the, the most seemingly precise measurement possible, even if you actually take all that through and look at a bodily measurement and we could say with absolute precision this person has an elevated um, requirement would be the wrong word, but if you had an increased usage of a certain nutrient that, that the body uses, sometimes that alone would be used as a as a predictor to say that justifies this person is using 10% more of this um, nutrient because, you know, if they're resistance training, we might show, well, they, they're using more protein, or if they're endurance training, they might be using more carbohydrate. That, by definition, means they should be consuming more of that nutrient. And that logically doesn't follow through either. When we work through the whole process, you're as well, let's ask how much are they eating already? Is the, is the person already consuming more than enough in both cases? Is the body able to tolerate the excess or can the body synthesize more of that nutrient if it requires it? So we mustn't forget that the body has all this elegantly evolved machinery so that if we're getting too much or too little of something, we have great systems to be able to tolerate and rectify those imbalances that don't require us to um, employ some personalized regime to rectify it for us absolutely so you you mentioned um, that if you were to um, um, you know define a, a an approach to personalized nutrition it would at least have to fulfill um, a number of um, uh, interrelated but independently essential criteria I think you've got three um, can't find the section but do, do you want to just quickly tell us because if there was um, a way of doing this what, what would it at least have to satisfy 
Yeah, so in the paper we, um, we describe these three independently essential criteria. Um, one is the ability to measure the predictive variable with sufficient precision and accuracy. Um, so you need to, be, if we take uh, the genotype as one example, but there are many different ones you could look at, that you need to be able to measure that in the first place. Um, other things may be more difficult to measure, such as people's habitual physical activity level, um, which could also be another predictive variable. You also need to be able to measure the outcome variable with sufficient precision and accuracy. And for some things that may be relatively straightforward, if our outcome is just the change in body weight, then that's relatively straightforward. A little bit more difficult if we want to look at, say, body composition on a, a large scale. Um, and then the third point is um, a robust and practically meaningful correlation and or causal relationship between the predictive and outcome variables. So we need to be able to measure both of these, predictor and outcome, but they need to have a meaningful relationship between them, i.e. the predictor um, results in a different outcome for different people and that it consistently does that. So ju just to clarify for folks that aren't necessarily experts in um, identifying causality and you know, have skilled backgrounds in epidemiology and statistics and so on. In, in order to be able to start to take data and apply it to an individual, even if you had the right test to do this, I mean, what sort of, what sort of numbers are we actually talking about here to actually have some sort of um, faith in the information that we're using? And I'd say this from the perspective of being a practitioner. Um. Yeah, that's a, a good question in terms of determining causality. Uh, so some people would argue that you can only determine causality from randomised controlled trials. So others, <laughs> others may argue that um, epidemiological evidence can be used to infer some causality. Um, if you're looking at in humans at least, then in my view it would be almost impossible unless you can do gene doping. Um, legally, um, inferring in any gene and any outcome. You can do it in animal models by knocking out a gene and looking what it does or, or regulating it. But in humans, actually, if you're going to be really rigorous and say, well, to demonstrate absolute cause and effects, unless you're doing gene doping, yeah. it's always an association. Yeah, as Javi says, the, the RCTs is really our, our gold standard to start showing that one variable might have some causal relationship to another, whereas um, when we're talking about individualized responses like this, the other aspect you'd want to see, let's say we have an RCT that's showing us this temporal causal relationship, we have good confidence, say from a series of RCTs, that variable A, when manipulated, with everything else or everything we know of to control, held constant, we see this consistent response in variable B. If we're informing precision nutrition or personalized nutrition, the, the further step would be to say, well, there might have been some variability in whether everybody responded or, or at the very least, whether some responded more than others. And then you'd also want repeat measurements to say, well, actually, the person who was the highest responder in that RCT repeatedly exhibited that, that um, response. And then you could start to get a, um, a trial where Let's say if you had your, your measured response and it was repeatedly demonstrating some responders and some non, if we take a, a fixed stable characteristic like biological sex, 
it could show up in your analysis statistically that, hang on, the, all the females responded um, more greatly or in the opposite direction to all the males. And your statistical test could give you a confidence level that would say this is how likely it is that you would have seen that response if in fact biological um, sex doesn't play a role here. And then for individuals, if you keep seeing a person respond at a very basic level, you're, you're starting to attribute not just causality, but identifying responders in that way. I think the thing we need to be careful of though is just by seeing the response on one occasion, we can't start to say that that's more equivalent to anecdote. If you just, if you try to supplement yourself and have a good game that day, none of us would jump to the conclusion that that, that particular strategy helped. Yeah, I think, um, so in terms of the cause and effect again, going back to that uh, biological sex comparison, um, if females were to consistently respond in a certain way to a certain diet, then actually, on the one hand, it may not matter whether that is a causal effect of being female or not, because if it's just a correlation and it's, I don't know, that females, uh, there was a, a case in the literature a while ago where um, perhaps females didn't store muscle glycogen as effectively as males post-exercise, but um, it may be the correlate of that females tended to not eat as much carbohydrate post-exercise. Um, if you know the true cause and effect, then that's useful because you can correct for that by knowing that females tend to eat less and therefore advise them to eat more carbohydrate, and then you may see a similar response to men. Yeah, yeah. I, it's such an important topic, this, because I think, you know, the, 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 these tests um, and also gadgets that we use in practice or in, in labs, you know, are, are impressive nowadays and they give the impression of extreme accuracy. But as I mentioned earlier, it, it, it's accurate, but only in the context in which, you know, that test was performed, i.e. in that snapshot, as you referred. And I think we we sort of extrapolate that snapshot to all of the time. And I think that gets very misleading in the same way that you could dip your hand into, you know, in the sea off the English Channel. Um, you make an assumption that, that, you know, all that water came from there. But actually, that water ultimately could have originated hundreds of thousands of miles away. So, you know, that, I guess, goes with the sort of the noise of data and, and so on. It's just exactly what are we looking at? So perhaps we're overcomplicating things by using um, high-end technology that in the scheme of things, 100, 200 years from now, we're going to look back on that and go, boy, was that a red herring. That was probably a genetically modified red herring at that. <laughs> um, yeah. so well, actually, not on that. I think yeah. the, uh, while the scientists having measurements that are, are less than perfect in their precision is just nothing but frustrating. But as a practitioner, this noise both in measurement and in control of participants and this law of the single variable that there's always stuff you're not measuring, that really does justify the role of the practitioner. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm aware that many of your listeners are practitioners who might be, um, might be a bit disheartened by the perspective we put across here. Because in one way, it might make you think, well, if the same guidelines are suitable for everybody, then there's no need to have anyone advise you. We can just send out an email with the same guidelines for everybody. But on the contrary, I think we're saying that personalized nutrition can be useful, but the kind of things we should be measuring are these ongoing variable variables, the things that change. And that absolutely then does require not just a simple 
single snapshot measurement that I'm sure with technology in the future, you, you know, your phone will be able to make that measurement and then dish out the seemingly personalized advice. But this really does justify having somebody who monitors a person and knows what they're doing. And, you know, the, the punchline to our whole paper was that what makes you special with regards to nutrition is not who you are, but what you do. Yeah. And what you do is, A, much more difficult to measure and requires a specialist who understands that, and B, requires constantly updating. It's not a stable or fixed characteristic. Most personal trainers, I'm sure, are not being asked just for an exercise plan or just for a diet plan. And even if they are, they don't provide those things in isolation. You might then be saying, well, let's try and adjust this first, and then we'll have to modify it in line with needs. So it, it by definition, requires constant careful monitoring. I completely agree with you. I mean, my entire practice has evolved that way. Um, certainly dabbled with all sorts of, um, well, let's say on the fringes of evidence um, in my earlier career and ultimately have come to realize the cold half truth, which is what we're discussing today some time ago by talking to people like you guys. Um, and for me, um, I will put my athletes, my clients through a series of tests and assessments. I've developed my own um, laboratory where I've got everything for you know metabolic testing, uh, body composition, uh, fitness testing, all that sort of thing. And um, the, I guess the analogy that I've used in the past is, um, apart from constantly trying to ram home, that all these things are just tools in a toolbox. A skilled practitioner or a, um, a, you know, a person um, can, can use these tools in the wrong way just as much as you can use one tool to do different jobs. It's very much down to the expert themselves to, to try and make the best appraisal and use of those tools but um, it, you know in the same way that a satellite is or a series of satellites are required for an accurate position on a GPS um, I like to think of lots of different tests are like a satellite and you need multiple tests to start to get a handle on to where you are but ultimately um, it's that idea of baselining an individual that's the personalization is well, where are you right now in the context of body composition, uh, state of metabolism, that sort of thing? To the best of my knowledge with the tools that I have as a practitioner, you go and do what I think is sensible to do at this point. Um, be consistent with it. Come back in a number of weeks and then we'll reassess you and compare you to your baseline. And it's only then that we can start to see what sort of journey that you've been going on and, and and it's based on that that I feel more comfortable giving recommendations um, and that I feel fits in with your concept of precision as opposed to um, personalization and personalization I guess takes the practitioner the expert out of the mix whereas precision really brings the, the expert into the mix and that's where the listeners most of whom are practitioners or researchers aiming to inform practitioners is the development of tools that allow the practitioner to understand where that person is or at least where they've come from in that in that journey it's that tracking that journey that you know seeing where we are on the map identifying where the obstacles are so that we can start to give advice as to perhaps which are the best directions for the immediate future to get to your to your goal does, does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely um, and that would be the, the main message, I think, is to, to pass that on to those actually applying. The, the issue we're talking about inter-individual responses isn't the statistic of 
that's been measured. There were people who responded and people who didn't. The, the important thing here is that what translates through into practice is that practitioners look at that information for what it is, interpret it and apply it correctly. So they, they actually question, are we measuring the right variables here, whether it's the thing that predicts or the, the outcome we want? Are we measuring them with sufficient precision? And, and then if a person responds, can we count on that? That's still happening. Um, so definitely there is, there is legs in precision nutrition and, and trying to prescribe appropriately for people and adjust that over time, which really does require the, the practitioner's role in that. So guys, I think one thing that emerges from this conversation is the concept is, you know, at some point, and it may be a long time from now, um, at least, you know, before I retire, <laughs> but it's going to be a long time before we can truly do a snapshot type test and then correlate that to some bespoke plan that's going to have a magic result that people um, possibly are trying to sell right now. Um, so we don't deny that it's a great idea and at some point it will happen. At some point science will get there. But it's, it's the understanding of what tools are available and what they can and can't do. And that, that's an issue that I think is not unique to sports science or science or medicine or all sorts of areas is there's a there's a mismatch between an understanding as to what a tool can actually do and how that tool should actually be used and how the messages behind or the instructions on the box for that tool are slightly misleading and in sports science or medicine we don't have an advertising standards agency to wade in and go hang on you can't you can't say that. Um, there's no proof. And, and yes, to, like with medicine, there's things you can and can't say about how a medicine works. But largely what we've got is clever people or clever sounding people, whether it's science or pseudoscience or the use of bad science or poorly, poorly, um, you know, poorly conducted studies and so on to sell these tools into the you know, into the trenches where the practitioners work. And they don't necessarily have all of the time or skills to be able to understand what tools do and don't work. And that's why we try and do things like podcasts, talk to guys like you, encourage people to actually read the papers in full. Um, and I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, if I could just, just add please, to that. Uh, please. Yeah, the, the, the measurements themselves on the one hand, whilst some may be complex, if people have enough money, for example, they could get them done uh, or either do them themselves or pay someone else to do them. But as you say, it's the education and that really gives people the tools to know what the boundaries are and the capabilities of a certain measurement tool. Um, and that's really what's useful in then applying it to practice. So by people going on courses or, or just absorbing knowledge either by podcasts or, or literature, um, that's really giving them the, the useful tools to apply um, this knowledge to practice. Absolutely. So let's let's just uh, you know we haven't got long left here. So let's just bring this back then to um, the concept of uh, personalization um, and what we reliably can personalize. And uh, you know we've used the word precision here. So what are the things that you guys feel we can measure um, in the real world and that can um, be very useful in informing what our decisions are in terms of, you know, our, 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 our own sort of customization of our own 
sort of dietary um, approaches. Okay, so I think that follows from what you were just saying about the, the future, where, what we can do now and what we can do in the future. And, and increases in precision help some measurements along. Physical activity undoubtedly is important for probably more nutrients than any other characteristic we could look at, I suspect. And our problem historically has been that it's very difficult to quantify. You could argue that the kind of questionnaires and recalls in the past meant that although your energy expenditure and your activity patterns per se are important, we just couldn't measure them. So increased precision in measuring that parameter is really important that we can now start to see those patterns in a valid way and actually quite a sensitive way in terms of seeing when and how we accumulate our energy expenditure. Alternatively, things like uh, genotyping, we have good measurements and I really hope that in future it, it, you know, it would be wonderful if we had a snapshot measurement you could have made once and forevermore it would predict your nutrition. It may be though that advances in precision of measurement are not what's required there if just the, the sheer regulation of how that predictor works is either well, certainly less important than your day-to-day -day variability we might end up saying, well, the precision is, is not helping us here. It's actually that differences within a person are what's important. For me, then, I think some of the snapshot things that, that we know are important currently, and these, these vary by which outcome we're interested in, but the kind of predictors that we have in the paper are um, certainly there's very clear aspects of so pregnancy, for example. We, we know change nutritional requirements significantly along with physical activity. And then in extreme cases, there's allergies or disease states where we could justify that we're really asking the question, when don't the standard guidelines apply and we might want to modify for a group? I think body mass, adiposity and age are, are the others for me that jump out from that list. Yeah, absolutely. So guys, um, I think it's time that we summarise then, you know, your 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 basic concept here and what your your messages are um, so Harry maybe you could you could kick this this off then so how would you sort of sum this up for folks then um, yeah um, so we based on the, the current evidence we don't really have much um, to go on in terms of personalizing nutrition based on any fixed characteristic or fixed measurement um, but given that our own behaviors vary drastically day to day, then for most people it would be appropriate to, to alter their nutrition in a precise way based on their, their requirements of a particular day. And I suppose my, my kind of overall summary would again be that if, um, if an individual, whether you're a practitioner or you're the person, the client, and you're exposed to any messages about personalized nutrition, immediately put your guard up and be aware that we're all receptive to the idea that we're special and that parts of the industry would rely on that message coming across. And while there are individual differences that are important, let's always take a step back and question that assumption and say, well, are we measuring the right variables? Are we doing so reliably? and therefore can we predict a future response and there are measurements we can make as Javi's mentioned it's probably more to do with the um, long-term measurement for changes in our requirements rather than just having a measurement made once that you can use to say I'm different to everybody else forevermore. 
absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm just going to finish it off by nicking um, the last thing that you say in the paper, which is ultimately what makes you special with regard to nutrition is not who you are, but what you do. And um, I wish I'd come up with that statement. <laughs> it's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Um, I will um, make sure that I've linked to your research gates um, where I know this paper in one form or another will be available um, for those that don't have um, the usual access. And I know folks will probably uh, want to listen to your previous podcasts with uh, James Bess on um, uh, energy metabolism on uh, episode 79 and Javier Gonzalez on episode 71 um, about uh, whether or not breakfast is really important for athletes. Absolutely. Um, both awesome topics. Um, if guys want to learn more about what you're up to, as I mentioned, your research gates will be up there. They can follow you on Twitter. Uh, quickly, James and Javier, what are your Twitters? Uh, so mine is at Gonzalez underscore JT. Mine's a little more complex for me to remember or recite. It's at Dr. B Steam Jets. That, that sounds a bit dodgy, but uh, we'll, we'll see what, 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 what channel you're on uh, later with that. But um, I'll tweet those out so people can get your correct um, uh, Twitter handles. Uh, you guys put out great content, so you'll, I highly recommend these guys to follow. Um, and also, if folks want to come study with you, I know that you're involved in the various undergraduate, um, um, postgraduate um, programs and research at Bath. How can they find out more about what your yeah. department is? We're actually both uh, admissions tutors here at Bath, and so please do get in touch with us. We're the people to talk to if you're interested in seeing the portfolio of studies you can do here. It's all in the Department for Health. If you go to the University of Bath website and look under Department for Health, you'll find a range of um, uh, bachelor's and master's programs in sport and exercise science and physical activity and health. Brilliant. And um, for folks that are interested in the lectures that these guys have done before for us on the ISSN Diploma Program, you can find those both in the ISSN Diploma course as well as our new exercise science and performance nutrition continuing professional development program. You can learn about that at our website at guruperformance.com. Um, but we've got loads of free content, whether it's infographics, info videos, or our new position stand articles, and of course the entire backlog of podcasts. You can find out about that and more just by going to guruperformance.com. I am Laurent Bannock, and um, it's been great to finally bring back another episode to you. I will bring another one back to you very soon. And finally, just to say thank you once again, Javier and James. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, thank you all, and thank you to the listeners. Um, speak to you all soon.